Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In today's episode, I'm in conversation with a physicist who is part of a team at CERN that has made a major breakthrough that could enable the development of a nuclear clock, a timekeeper that could outperform even the best atomic clocks. An atomic clock keeps time by locking an extremely stable laser to the frequency of a specific atomic transition. Today, the best instruments are so accurate that they would accumulate an error of less than 10 milliseconds after 13.7 billion years of operation. And that's the current age of the universe. As well as underpinning how we define time, atomic clocks provide the timing for GPS and mobile phone networks, and are also used in the search for new physics. It should be possible to create an even more accurate clock using a nuclear transition, specifically a low-frequency transition that occurs in thorium-229. However, physicists have struggled to observe the vacuum ultraviolet light associated with this transition. But now, researchers working at the Isolde facility at CERN have seen the light. To talk about the breakthrough, I'm joined down the line from Belgium by Sandro Kramer, who is at the Institute for Nuclear and Radiation Physics at the Catholic University of Leuven and is also a member of the Isolde team. Hi, Sandro. Welcome to the podcast, and congratulations for your work on Thorium-229. Hi, thank you. And so, Sandro, can you explain in simple terms how a nuclear clock would work? Is it, would it be broadly along the same lines as, as an atomic clock? Yes, indeed. It would be uh, pretty much like an optical atomic clock, um, but maybe to give you a bit more an idea, I, I like to, to explain it with an analogon. Uh, so imagine you have um, a musician, a violin, and a tuning fork. And uh, so these are basically the, the basic ingredients of an atomic clock as well. Um, let's see. So before you, you start a concert, the musician will attune its instrument. And that's basically the process an atomic clock does as well. Uh, so what we have here is that um, the, the musician will first um, start to hit the string on its violin and it will create a wave of a certain frequency. And um, this frequency might, in the case that it's exactly at where it should be, um, then bring the, the tuning fork into, into resonance and then make it vibrate. And this is visually, visually visible and the mus musician knows that now he hits the right frequency. If he's not in the right frequency, what he will do is he will, will uh, change the, the tuning of his string and um, until he actually hits this resonance. And that's exactly the process an atomic clock does. But there, the tuning fork is a quantum mechanical two-level system. Uh, so you, you typically have um, a ground and an excited state. Um, this can uh, be an, a transition between electronic levels in a typical atomic clock. And now if you talk about the nuclear clock, we're talking about nuclear levels here. And uh, in order to make a transition from the ground to the excited state, we need to hit exactly the right frequency. And this is very, very well defined. And um, uh, this is uh, very similar then to the tuning fork, which is exactly at a certain note um, 
that, that you want to, to bring the string to. And now we have the string of the violin, and this is typically a laser. Uh, so that is a light wave with a certain frequency. And um, this will allow to excite the, the quantum mechanical two-level system. And then what is missing is a control loop that actually puts the laser always on the right frequency. And that is what the, what the job of the musician is, to see whether the, the, the tuning fork actually vibrates and um, then to, to adjust the string accordingly. And so, how would that be different in a in a, in a nuclear clock? Is it is it simply uh, instead of using the atomic transition, you're uh, as the tuning fork, you're using uh, a nuclear transition? Yes, I mean the basic answer is yes, but of course this comes with a lot of technical challenges um, because a, a nucleus is uh, is very much decoupled from the environment, um, and also typical nuclei have energies which are way larger than the transitions uh, typically used in atomic optical clocks. And uh, so that's where the problem lies, why you cannot simply use um, uh, a nucleus, why this is not straightforward. So uh, there's one nucleus that we know, and this is this famous thorium-229, which actually has a transition which lies relatively close to, uh, to, to what we know from, from the atoms. Um, but it's still very challenging because the laser that needs, is used to, to excite this nucleus um, still has to be built, actually, and um, this is technologically very challenging. And and I think it, it it was also very challenging to to actually find this transition, wasn't it? Because um, I think I, I think it it had been predicted um, for a very long time, but but actually um, finding it and um, analyzing the transition was difficult to do. What why has it been so difficult to observe radiation from the from this specific transition? Yes, that's indeed true. I mean, uh, the, the, the first uh, appearance in literature stems from the mid-70s, where people found um, in the nuclear structure uh, indications that actually such a level would exist. And um, uh, people have tried over many years to, to, to find states, and, and many people have also tried to specifically look for the light that is emitted when, when the state decays. Um, but uh, this was very challenging because uh, this is a regime which is not very well known to nuclear physicists. This is extremely low energy. We're talking about eight electron volts here. To give you an idea, typical nuclear energy difference that we study in nuclear physics are on the order of tens, hundreds, or, or of kilo electron volt or mega electron volt. So this is a factor of, let's say, 10 to the 4, 10 to the 5 higher. And so we need very different experimental techniques. Um, and then it has... It was very challenging to, to actually see this for the first time, and this has only been achieved in 2016, so uh, not a very long time ago. Um, but then people looked also for the, the most fundamental processes, and people have tried this with different instruments. But as the, the, the properties known um, had a relatively large uncertainty, and this uncertainty was larger than actually what would determine a choice of the right instrument to measure it, um, uh, many many generations of scientists have failed there, and, um, and I think this is also why it's it's very important that we actually saw this now and that that this is now uh, really um, yeah hammered down in a sense that uh, we know that textbook physics is is right. And and Sandra, you mentioned that um, that a normal nuclear transition would be much higher energy. I mean, I suppose we we, we think of those. The, the radiation that's given off as as gamma rays, gamma radiation, which is which is a much higher energy than you could you could ever create in in a laser. Why why is this specific um, transition 
such a low energy? What 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 what's going on in the nucleus? What 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 sort of physical transition is occurring um, to allow for such a low energy transition? This is actually a very good question, and I think um, no one has a, a really uh, good answer on this yet. Um, I think the, the nucleus and, and all the processes governing the, especially the heavy nuclei, are not yet 100% understood. And it's, it's very difficult to, to find a, a fundamental model of, of heavy nuclei. Um, so uh, I think the answer I can give here is that we are just very lucky that nature gives us this nucleus. And uh, physicists have studied many thousands of radioisotopes in the meantime, and um, this is the only one where they found such a level. It's not excluded that there are not more out there in nature. It's maybe even highly probable, but um, what they have not been observed yet. Um, and uh, it's, it's very hard to, to really understand where this comes from, where, what the fundamental processes are that, that govern this. Um, but I think it's just among the, the many known nuclei um, uh, a lucky coincidence that this state exists. Right, and, and, and you mentioned that in 2016, um, physicists caught sight of this transition. But am I right in thinking that they didn't actually observe the, the radiation that was given off directly, that they observed um, some sort of uh, uh, associated process? Is, is that right? Yes, that's correct. Uh, so what they, they observed was um, what we call the, the electron conversion decay. Uh, so you have in, in nuclei, typically you, you have um, excited states which decay by gamma decay, but then in, depending on, on the exact situation, you have a, a competing process which is called internal conversion. Uh, what happens there is that um, the energy is not emitted in the form of a photon, so an electromagnetic wave, but rather given to one of the electrons surrounding the atomic nucleus and um, then carried away by an electron. And um, uh, this is uh, something that is well known from, from many transitions at higher energies in nuclei, and which was also predicted for this uh, specific transition and which also plays a crucial role. Um, in this uh, case, um, this, is, uh, this can become a very strong transition. So in most cases, you have a competing process and a certain percentage goes to one decay branch, so as, as emitted as a photon, and another percentage goes to, to a conversion electron branch emitted as an electron. Um, in our case of thorium-229, because of the very low energy, it happens that if this uh, conversion decay channel is, is allowed, then this will predominantly decay via this channel and there are no photons coming out. So that's, in a sense, the, the easier um, decay channel because um, in, in many situations, depending on the chemical environment, this is an allowed process. And so this was the logic route to first actually look for this conversion electron channel, while the more fundamental, very basic process is actually the emission of a photon. And um, uh, it, it was just experimentally easier to first look for this, and then in a second step, actually, to also look for the, the very basic process of photon emission. Is, is that a bad thing, ultimately? Because when, you know, in, in years in the future, when somebody tries to make a a, a nuclear clock, are they going to be up against that electron conversion process? Is it going to be stealing most of the light that's coming out of the, of the nucleus and make it more difficult to, to build a clock? Potentially, yes. So the, the problem here is that you, you really have to tailor your, your chemical environment um, to, to, to really prohibit this, this uh, conversion decay channel and then 
forced by that that the, the, the decay happens in a radiative way. Um, this is uh, something that is um, desirable for a clock which um, which operates in a solid state medium. So basically, if you're working with an ion trap, it's very easy. You go to a two plus, three plus, or four plus charge state, and then uh, your um, conversion electron channel is uh, energetically not possible. Uh, but it's different in a solid because there you have a lot of electrons from the environment, and these electrons might may make that uh, you get this converted electron channel. But if you're in a solid, your electrons cannot come out, so you cannot measure them. And that means that you have to really rely on the photons coming out. And uh, that means you need a high degree of control over your chemical environment. And only very specific crystalline environments are actually thought to be to allow for this process to happen and um, eventually to, to be able to, to build a clock based on this. I see. And and in your experiment at CERN, how how were you able to um, to see the radiation uh, associated with the decay when when others haven't? What um, what was the special trick or uh, um, uh, that or part of the experiment that allowed you to do so? Yeah, I think there are two aspects for this. Um, the first one is that. Um, we use crystals. People have used crystals before, but we were very carefully studying them uh, before. So we, we implanted um, ions into these crystals and we needed to make sure that in the, in the local lattice position in the crystal, they sit in the right position. And luckily in Leuven, we have solid state colleagues that are able to dissolve, actually measure exactly this property. And they did this for us. And they came to the conclusion that uh, this implantation technique that we uh, use um, makes up that, that we end up in a, in a position which uh, is very favorable to observe the radiative decay. The second aspect, what we did different, is that uh, previously people have used um, a very specific alpha decay, uh, uranium-233, uh, which decays to thorium-229, which leaves behind a small of the, the decay nuclei in this isomeric state. Um, and this is only 2% there. Uh, and we tried to look for something that actually has a higher population probability of the isomeric state, because the more we populate it, the more signal we also get out while the background is the same. Um, and then there's a second aspect um, for, for what we did differently with uh, um, the, the population. That is that uh, we used a very gentle decay. So the uranium alpha decay, there, there's a 84 kilo electron volt uh, nuclear recoil. That means that your, your nucleus inside a solid state medium is re-implanted in the medium and at the same time you have a four and a half MeV alpha going out which um, will uh, lead to a lot of disturbances in the crystal and introduce a lot of defect. It's stopped within a very short range and deposits a lot of energy. Um, I typically like to say this is very good for, for curing cancer because that's exactly what is used in, in radio um, therapy or in, in radio pharmaceuticals. But uh, in our case, this introduces the damage that, uh, that changes the chemical environment in our crystals, and that is uh, uh, not very uh, good for our experiments. So we used a beta decay, which is very soft and gentle, and which has almost no recoil, and the betas don't disturb us. And then the second thing is, um, from the probability to populate the isomer, we increase this by a factor of, we don't know exactly, but at least 7 and up to actually 50. So this is a big advantage over the, the uranium method. And um, I think this combined then with a very careful uh, study of the implantation technique um, actually made us overcome the signal to noise threshold that um, other experiments didn't manage. 
And and so now that you've you've seen this this transition, and um, I'm I'm guessing you've measured the the the, the frequency or the energy of, of the light that's given off. Does that mean that um, that nuclear clock scientists uh, or metrologists can now go ahead and build a nuclear clock using this isotope of thorium? Or is there is there a lot more work to uh, to do before that can happen? Oh, yes. I think there's a lot of uh, work to still be done. But of course, this is very useful information for the people that are working towards the nuclear clock. So I think that really the clock operation itself is uh, still a bit in the future. Uh, but what is the next big step is to, to, to laser excite the nuclear transition, because this is at the heart of the clock. Uh, this is what I, what I said before. That's basically the playing the violin uh, to see whether it, it uh, makes the, the tuning fork vibrate. This is very important, but this has never been shown so far. Nuclear excitation at that energy level and this with a laser has never been shown. Um, but what is difficult there is that um, you have an, a laser which is at very extreme conditions. This is 150 nanometer. Um, typically, lasers in the ultraviolet below two, no, above 200 nanometer are already very challenging. 150 nanometer is extremely challenging in terms of, of laser technology. So the better we constrain the, the energy range by spectroscopic techniques, the better for, for the people developing concepts and then actually also lasers. Um, and then, um, so this is, I think, that the big next step to be done. Uh, and, and this will then allow to really go down in precision and, and to, to, to find uh, the nuclear transition really at a, at a kilohertz level or a hertz level, while now we're talking still about uncertainties of terahertz. So there are orders of magnitudes that need to be bridged. Um, but I think uh, people are right now working on this. Metrologists are setting up these laser systems, running them. And uh, I think it's a matter of time until we find this laser excitation. I see. And so is, is that is that sort of research that you would do? Um, or if, are you sort of going to be handing this over to the metrologists? Um, or, or I suppose, are you going to be doing more work on this isotope of thorium at um, Isolde? Or is, is your work done? And are you maybe going, going to be exploring other nuclei in the future? I think there's still a little bit more work to be done. And actually, we're planning right now um, a series of follow-up experiments uh, that should happen this summer. Um, so what we want to do is first, uh, we have shown that uh, we can see the photons from the radiative decay. We have also redetermined its energy. It's more precisely than, than the previous one known from literature. But I think our instrument should allow for more. So I think we can, uh, can get a factor of um, two or four or maybe five better than what we have done for now. So this certainly helps uh, laser physicists even a little bit more. Um, and the second thing is that um, if, if we have shown now that in principle uh, a solid-state nuclear clock that many people have doubted that would ever work could work because it's, you're able to see this radiative decay. And um, the next step will be to, to actually better understand all the processes that are happening in, this, in these crystals and also to characterize a bunch of different materials to pick the one which is best suited for a later clock operation. And there, this, uh, this method that is older offers the nice advantage that this is a relatively fast process. Uh, you implant, you measure, and after a couple of hours, you can proceed to the next material, and you're relatively quick and efficient in that. And so this is where we see um, the future for these experiments for the next couple of years. I see. I see. And, and just one, one final thing. Um, 
uh, I wanted to ask. It, so um, the, the, this nuclear clock would have a higher frequency than than an atomic clock, which which I suppose means in principle that it, it could be more accurate. But there, there are other benefits as well, aren't there, in terms of uh, uh, the nuclear system would not be as susceptible to environmental noise as as um, an atomic clock would be. And, and is that another benefit of, of building a clock out of a, using a nuclear transition rather than an atomic transition? Yes, that is indeed a conceptual advantage that uh, the nucleus is very small, around five orders, four to five orders smaller than, than a typical electronic shell in, in this heavy, um, heavy mass region of, of nuclei. And uh, this gives, of course, advantages that uh, all the environmental influences are much smaller and, and a change of magnetic field, for instance, or a change of electric field surrounding the nucleus is smaller. However, you have to watch out there because um, people have tried to evaluate what you can achieve as precision with this clock. Um, and back at the time, this was uh, found to be on the order of 10 to the minus 19 accuracy. Now, I should mention that nowadays atomic clocks, since this has been investigated, have made big steps forward and they are reaching now the, 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 10 to the low 10 to the minus 18 region entering the 10 to the minus 19. So I would say until the nuclear clock is ready, we might have also atomic clocks which, uh, which can be co um, competitive in terms of absolute accuracy. But I would like to stress that uh, a nuclear clock still has a very, very big advantage for fundamental physics, and that is that um, it's a nucleus. So it feels very different fundamental forces. The, the electrons, they only see the electromagnetic interaction, uh, photons. But um, a nucleus is not only disturbed by, by, by photons, but also by the, uh, the strong and weak interaction. And um, that makes that if you, if you would compare an, an atomic system at the 10 to the minus 19 level with a nuclear system, 19 level, um, you, you might see uh, actually that these clocks uh, start to deviate in their, their frequency output. And where could this come from? And that is uh, actually a very fundamental physics question. Um, so one solution where this might come from is that just the coupling constants in the standard model change over time or change by the influence or the presence of physics beyond the standard model. And uh, as such, um, the, the combination of a very stable atomic clock with a very stable nuclear clock could be one of the prime tools for future fundamental physics uh, experiments, uh, searching for basically any effect beyond the standard model. Mm. Well, that sounds that sounds really exciting, Sandro. Um, all the best with your with your research um, in this field, and thanks for coming on the podcast to talk about it. You can read more about the pioneering work of Sandro Kramer and colleagues on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Photons from Nuclear Clock Transition Are Seen at Long Last. And if you'd like to learn about other potential uses for nuclear isomers such as thorium-229, Philip Walker and Zolt Podolyak of the University of Surrey have written an article for Physics World that presents five examples of how these long-lived, excited nuclear states are being used in applications including medical physics and nuclear batteries. That article is called Celebrating a Century of Nuclear Isomers.
And speaking about batteries, the Physics World columnist James McKenzie has taken a critical look at Master Plan 3 from the electric car maker Tesla. Also known as MP3, the plan received a lukewarm reception from U.S. financial markets when it was released earlier this year. However, McKenzie argues that it could be down to the short-term outlook of these institutions. In his column, here's why Tesla's Master Plan 3 makes a lot of sense for a sustainable future. He explains why moving away from fossil fuels by the further electrification of the economy looks like the way forward. Energy is not the only technological conundrum that's facing humanity at the moment. We've enjoyed decades of rapid innovation in the semiconductor industry as characterized by Moore's Law, the doubling of transistors on a silicon chip that happens about every two years. However, this exponential growth can't go on forever, and physicists, material scientists, and engineers are on the lookout for new ways to boost the performance of computers. In the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast, host Andrew Glester is joined by three experts who look at how new paradigms such as optical and quantum-based computing could play key roles in the future. That podcast is called Moore's Law in Peril and the Future of Computing. And it and all other episodes of the Stories podcast can be found on the Physics World website and at your favorite podcast provider. Last week, I had the pleasure of hosting two webinars that also looked to the future of computing. One was called Boron Arsenide Single Crystals with Ultra-High Thermoconductivity and Carrier Mobility. And that was presented by Jifeng Ren of the University of Houston. Ren is an expert in the fabrication and characterization of boron arsenide, which is a wonder material that could someday be used to create computer chips that can run faster and cooler. The other webinar was given by Jason Smith of the University of Oxford and was called Defect Engineering for Quantum Memory Chips. Smith explored developments in the defect engineering of materials that can be used to create chip devices for quantum communications and computing. You can watch both webinars on the Physics World website, where you'll find them in the audio and video tab. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Sandro Kramer for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week when I'll be chatting with a physics teacher about the physics of the classic Pink Floyd album, The Dark Side of the Moon, and how its cover inspired his students to learn about optics. Physics World.